This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Today, we're going to talk about the power of convergence and cross-functional thinking within business and the Bista Village Shopping Collection, which is run by uh, the founder and chairman, Scott Malkin, who's with us today, is really the most incredible example of that. He has a business that is one of the most productive retail spaces on the planet. The Bista Village itself in London or outside of London is arguably the most productive uh, shopping center on the planet. He has a customer base more than 50% of which uh, comes from long haul. The institution itself, the European uh, villages, contribute 13% of the entire growth in the luxury industry in Europe last year. I mean, think about that for just a second. 13% of the whole industry's growth was given or delivered by the Value Retail Shopping Collection. And the customers are young. They are global, they are affluent, and they are discovering brands there for the first time. 78% of the customers are saying that they are discovering a luxury brand for the first time at the Vista Village Shopping Collection. Nearly 30% of those uh, are certain that they will go on to buy uh, at full price afterwards. There's a NPS score that the company has that is, I think, unrivaled in the industry. And as a result, they're really one of the most important customer acquisition engine, as I sometimes think they are. Let's get started. All right, Scott Malkin, thank you so much for joining us on the safari today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Sitting here under Marvin's portrait, it's kind of wonderful to be having a chat with him as well. He's a, he remains an inspiration. <laughs> there we go. So... I have a lot to cover with you. I, you and I have known each other for, I don't know, pushing 15 years now, and we've worked together for many of those years. As you know, uh, I'm quite inspired by the things that your team does and how you operate. The business is a machine uh, on any, by any standard in retail, uh, let alone luxury. So we have a lot of things to cover on this podcast, so you'll forgive me if I you know, have to skip through a bunch of it. But let's start um, somewhat from the beginning. In this world of convergence, retailers and brands and real estate developers and media companies, everyone's sort of racing towards the center, um, trying to do each other's business. And you quite uniquely have, yes, a real estate um, backbone. You have uh, a retail spirit. You think like a hotel company. And you also care about theater, about experiences. And those four pillars. I think make up part of, if not most of, the DNA of your company. So talk a little bit about 
has it been from the beginning that way? And explain, obviously, to the listeners, you know, the fundamentals of what your business does and what it is. Thanks, Morty. We are in the business of creating memories. We're in the business of addressing emotion through delivering unusual experiences, memorable experiences. And our target customer is a woman, a long-haul traveler, even if she lives down the road. Long haul, describe long-haul traveler. What does that mean? Angela Ahrens, when she was running Burberry, talked of the traveling luxury consumer. This is someone who is a global citizen, informed about brands, informed about choices, and making decisions rather than being told what to do. And in fact, the decisions she makes influence all other buying segments mm-hmm. that touch us. Mm-hmm. So we love her because she is the future of brands. If uh, the future of retail is digital, the future of brands is physical. And when she comes and spends a day, we had three women from New York, one of our villages earlier this week, each spend 15,000 euros in three hours. And they spent not because they needed to take those items away and not because they were on a shopping trip say, but because they were having a great experience. Mm-hmm. And the, the purchases and the process of purchasing were what a merchant would recognize. We don't have many merchants around these days, but uh, what Marvin Traub did at Bloomingdale's was embrace the customer mm-hmm. from the point of view of a merchant creating a special experience. And everything from his festivals welcoming the Queen of England to celebrating new markets, Brazil, India, The sentiment that drives those things is, in the end, what counterbalances the commoditization of the digital world. Mm -hmm. If we want efficiency, we find that online. Mm -hmm. If we want experience, we must go in person. We are programmed in our DNA to be social beings. So if I'm a brand and a greater percentage of my goods, I might be even a luxury brand, Mm -hmm. and a greater percentage of... I sell is sold online. It's sold without a soul. And how do I compensate for that? Where is the brand equity defined, explained, strengthened? It's, it's through the physical touch points of what yep. we call flagship retail. Yep. So the future of physical retail is flagship retail. And flagship retail is having the flexibility. You describe what we call these four pillars, the hardware, which is the real estate, the software, which is the retail, it's the content the guest-facing experiences, which is that hospitality route. And then the curation of experience, which is a Prada pop-up store in Marfa, Texas, Mm -hmm. or Studio 54 between 1977 and 1980. It's the mixture of people and the moment that deliver experience that encourages people. And you always talk about the software versus the hardware. And in this case... Maybe you know real estate and retail are part of the hardware, but hospitality and experiences are the software, and the two together make what the Bista Village shopping collection is. So there is this uh, great expression, FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, we There's a new one, by the way, called JOMO, which is the joy of missing out too. <laughs> <laughs> so as we, as we have more joy by doing things electronically, will want to counterbalance that with, with touching, feeling the five senses, 
and yet the expectations as to what is acceptable experience are shifting. They're evolving rapidly, shifting every day. And what was good enough this year, we know for sure won't be good enough next year. So everything that we are doing in our culture is about embracing the same qualities that a, a powerful brand would value. Problem is, many brands are, in the end, reporting quarterly numbers. They're compared across the sector, different met- metrics. What they don't necessarily uh, get measured by is why the brand works. What's the cultural quality that makes it work? And by the way, when they're looking at us, they judge us mechanically. And they don't necessarily look at us as a, a partner in supporting their brand identity and their brand definition. When they do, and when we are a partner in that sense, we can do fantastic things together. Yeah. We, we um, as you know, uh, here are all sort of born from, from Marvin, who, who probably is one of the inventors of retail theater. Today, it's really evolved a little bit to what we call retail hospitality. You guys, I think, once again, are at the sort of epicenter of retail hospitality. You partner with L'Hôtel Hospitalière de Lausanne, which is you know, uh, the equivalent in Europe of, you know, of Cornell, actually, Cornell Hospitality School, to infuse that kind of um, welcoming effect into the, sh- the centers. Um, you're, not, you're not just, a, you're not just a, a village that is sterile. It's about welcoming and helping and service. So talk about that cultural infusion, which has been there from the beginning, but I think you doubled down on it relatively recently. Fashion is all about tourism. And tourism is all about experience. And if you can create, back to this idea of the traveling luxury consumer, if you can create those special environments, create that appeal, don't assume it's easily repeatable. Stay in place, raise the bar, invest more, and and have an operating culture. Again, convergence of not just real estate guys, you're have an operating mindset and hire a lot of retailers to be on site, correct? We are overwhelmingly staffed by retailers. Our retailers think we are a retail company. You think you're a real estate guy, but you're really a retail guy. I'm a, uh, I, I'm the guy <laughs> who locks the door and doesn't let anybody leave until they figure out what they do next. But you put these groups together and people are passionate and they're professionals and they're focused and they all have uh, a vision that they can lead incorporating components they tend not to have a vision that together they share the leadership mm-hmm. it's messy the friction is painful mm-hmm. but that's actually what produces the outcome and so what we look to do is find people who have a, an ambition to be more than conventional because our belief is that whatever is conventional today is already out of date and who in that aspiration to transcend convention recognize they have to make sacrifices. This, this idea of the journey, right? the, the transcendentalist said that, that the journey is more important than the destination. So that's something about the quality of the journey, the quality of the experience, the people. And what's exciting about our company is that people want to join us even though they understand it's not conventional. It is a bit messy. And the retailers think we're a retail company. Our hoteliers think we're a hotel culture. Mm-hmm. They know we're not a hotel operating company. Our real estate people are convinced that it's all about the hardware. That's why it works. You let the inmates run the asylum. We, um, <laughs> we have the pleasure of, of merging these forces. What's interesting is great. some choices, if you talk about hardware, 
if you're in the wrong place or you have the wrong physical construct, you're doomed. And and the challenge with malls is they were anchored by department stores. They were meant to be this great innovation, and they're inflexible. You can't really redesign them. You can't really recut them. So you mentioned villages before. We have open-air pedestrianized shopping streets that are highly flexible, 25% of our They're beautiful, mix. beautifully designed. They're meant to embrace the guest. And we have guests rather than shoppers, of course, because of the hotel industry influences on us. But, but they're meant to allow the guest to embrace experience. And 25% of our brands in the merchandise mix change every year, bigger, smaller, different. And another 20% on average change because they're on a cycle of refitting. So 45, 50% of the physical experience is brand new every year, which from a department store operating perspective, that's reinvesting in units, fixtures, higher quality delivery product. But a shopping center or Madison Avenue aren't curated that way. It's not physically possible. Yeah, but it's funny you, ref- you referenced the department store. I feel that um, what's interesting about your business, A, a it's a case study in cross-functional uh, integration. People of different mindsets, backgrounds, nationalities even. Let's not forget that you, know, you have teams across now with it, 10 countries. We have 18 nationalities and 27 languages. Yeah, there we go. But I, I really also feel that it's, it's not just a real estate company, it's not a mall company. You actually might more logically be defined as a leased department store in some ways because it's all concession-based. Though it looks like a village, it looks like an open-air shopping center, it has a lot of the mindset of, look, it's, it's our center. We partner with you, the brand, who are our client. But we're ultimately working together to make sure that we get the best outcome for our visitors who are everyone's clients. Well, what's interesting is I think one of the reasons department stores are less and less relevant in our world, in our modern retail world, is that the merchant and the role of the merchant has been shifting towards the brands. So the U.S. model wasn't a lease department store model. It was a the comp- store, board, yeah. store was owned bought. They understood the customer. They, they, the tradition of becoming a merchant was to start as a buyer. And that's all, that's all gone, in part because the merchants have been edging towards the brands, and the brands have had to embrace retail and retail experience as a way of defining who they are and what they do. So today, we're in this trans- transition. And if you think about a leased department model, Harrods, Selfridges, they're, they're working in partnership with the brands. And the brands who can be good merchants end up with a lot of room to run. And the brands who are missing a merchant, maybe, maybe that post is unfilled or maybe that post isn't valued sufficiently, you'll see the department stores in that model step forward and try to assist. That's very much the way we think. That's not the way U.S. department stores today think because they're still rooted in that own-bought logic. Though that is changing, but I agree historically that is the case. Yeah. And even as they go to the leased model, it's like a, it's like a physical business moving online. There's a dominant culture. The, the digital business is going to physical stores, which, by the way, they're doing because the customer acquisition cost online is, is unsupportable, have somehow an easier way of making a transition, mostly because they're just younger and less set in their ways. 
So that's it's a good transition. You talked about the customer and customer acquisition to this notion that I've been saying a lot about your business, which is that it's you know, a service as a software. Everyone knows the term software as a service, but the notion of bringing both in its sort of two overlapping universes. One is the customer-centric one, and the other is the business-centric one. So there's a B2B element and a B2C element. So I think you're an engine room, both a B2B engine room and a B2C engine room. Let's start with the consumer. You have a very young, very affluent, very global consumer. There are, by my count, probably about 5 million transactions a year, which most of those are probably uh, unique transactions. So you're bringing uh, 40 million visitors, a high conversion rate, probably around 12, 13%. That means that you're delivering new customers to the industry. And I know that about 75 to 80% of those customers then go on to buy at full price. So you're delivering, by my count, maybe 1.3 million customers uh, into the ecosystem in any given year. And I don't know of any other platform that does it quite that way. Can you think of any other customer acquisition machine uh, as yours? Yeah, the numbers are, are fascinating. And I just take a moment to mention they're rooted on studies done by the Boston Consultant Group and McKinsey. So we're together able to see some of the data from an independent perspective. I think the, the logic of our business is to celebrate the product, to embrace product and to and to embrace the the emotion that goes into delivering great product. And that means constantly changing, constantly adapting. And we see some brands who can do that and other brands who clearly failed to do that. The younger customer and the metrics of the younger customer, definition of the younger customer, that's what everyone wants. I don't dare say we understand that customer such that we deliver to her as much as I say that our our process produces something that attracts her and we're rigidly committed to protecting that process. And brands are always smarter than we are. The customer's always right. And brands are always telling us what to do. We listen, we learn, but we don't we don't bend to follow their models because ironically their models are looking at yesterday's customer, and our vision is tomorrow's customer today. Where does one find that uh, with impact? I think on an episodic basis, through celebrity endorsements or role models in the digital world, uh, a Kardashian can introduce a makeup brand and it can explode into existence, but it may or may not be there four years later. Uh, in a in a Retail, traditional retail sense, a brand can be launched with great fanfare, enormous investment, and burns out yeah. quickly. It's expensive. And the interesting contrast would be, we see now the example of Barney's. Is Barney's a brand as opposed to a, to a department store? Is it a definition of product? You see different people looking at Barney's and saying, well, the old model economically was unsustainable. So from a bankruptcy judge, we will acquire the business and do something with it. And you see several completely different visions of what Barney's might be, none of which, I would argue, 
is going to be this customer acquisition generator platform described. Right. And I think what's fascinating to talk about is that when you think about the nearly $4 billion sales that you do annually uh, as a platform across two continents, uh, soon to be hopefully one day a third potentially to be, to be uh, explored, I know. Um, but you have combined sales that you know, rival uh, both Farfetch and Net-A-Porter combined, if not throw in a few other luxury e-commerce businesses. And if you take those businesses, for example, Farfetch, I think, has 15 million unique visitors per uh, month, but they convert at 2%, right? So 2% of those 15 million, 300,000 people come into their shop, as it were. And so if you annualize that, that's uh, 3.6 million people. So that is a customer acquisition engine as well. But the efficiency of the Bista Villa shopping collection, plus the brand equity enhancing nature of it, because you're bringing them into the temples designed by the brands. And I think that comes into you know, something we'll talk about a little bit later on is the brand equity versus profitability and can one deliver both? And I, I believe you do. But talk a little bit about this, the platform, the fact that as now going to the B2B side of this equation, we talked about the customer, the young customer, but you're bringing these young customers into the ecosystem. You have hugely profitable four-wall economics. You have a beautiful brand environment. The stores are uh, built out exquisitely, and you're calling them flagships today, and, and you're right. So from a B2B perspective, um, aren't the brands having their cake and eating it at the Bista Villa shopping collection? That's a fascinating question. How, how do you think brands view what we do, Morgan? Because, because my sense is it's all over the map. That's a that's a good question. I I think that the luxury brand industry in general uh, is still stuck in various instances in the 20th century. Now, the the industry at large has been growing, fueled by an extended economic uh, expansion that's now 10 years long and and hopefully will long continue. But nonetheless, it's been fueled by an incredible expansion. Um, therefore, it's been a rising tide. Now, I'm not saying they didn't have to fight for that expansion, but in general, the industry has expanded. What they haven't embraced fully uh, until very recently was e-commerce. So e-commerce is now sort of du jour and something they talk about. And I would say that historically, it was always off-price or outlet in general, but also e-commerce was a no-no. And I think they're suddenly realizing that in order to run a business properly, uh, you need to have a graceful way to engage with uh, the disposable of, of uh, excess inventory, but also to not burn product because the consumer is very sustainability conscious. They care about the environment. They don't want waste, uh, and they frankly will not stand for it. And you know, today, any micro element of one's business can be magnified globally by social media. So they're realizing that not only can it solve that problem, but it's, as I said earlier, a hugely profitable environment, though they don't, you know, not all of these kinds of businesses are created equal. I would argue that value retail shopping, value retail and Bista Village shopping collection is kind of its own distribution channel. And it's not an outlet company. Uh, it is a hybrid uh, of different elements. And so I think you might be right in suggesting that um, there's still a lot of learning that the luxury executives still uh, could have about the power of a platform such as this that has both physical brand equity enhancing uh, capabilities, 
but on the other hand, is wildly profitable. And I, to, by my measures, by the way, you know, if you, the average discount is fifty percent off of for retail, I believe that the you know, with the fifteen percent occupancy cost and store services and 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 personnel at twenty two percent. These companies, on average, I believe, are making somewhere between twenty and twenty-five percent four-wall contribution, uh, and and by the way, not at small numbers, at at high velocities. So wildly profitable, and therefore the payback, the payback on your capex on building the stores is probably months, not years. So it's really, it's it's sort of free customer acquisition, or it's it's almost negative occupancy cost. I mean, it's just it's just a. You need to be here. I, I can't see any other, any other uh, uh, way to say it. But I guess I answered that question quite long. What do you, what do you think about that? So I'll try to complement what you've just said. Firstly, I think there's an important requirement, which I would term as one of discipline. We must have a clear purpose and we must have a disciplined approach. So, for example, one reason we have 800 retailers is they are in the shops every day working with the brands to ensure that we only have in those shops well-curated, complete collections of authentic surplus, no manufactured second-tier lines, no fake product, no diminution of brand quality. This is all about respect, respect for the brand, respect for the product, and respect for the guest, for the customer. So that's awkward to address. It's limiting in some ways the profitability of the brands compared to what they've been able to do in the U.S. But on the other hand, in the U.S., they've destroyed their their brand equity in the process. And they've destroyed the channel of distribution. We take the approach that flagship retail has the same core characteristics regardless of the merchandise positioning, whether it's surplus or current season. Uh, others don't necessarily agree. Uh, that That's the discipline piece. The second term I would uh, emphasize is humility. It takes humility to embrace agility. And the only way forward for brands or companies in this sector is to have organizational and emotional agility. And those are not found in this sector or in most sectors. And uh, the bigger one is and the more established one is and the requirement there is to run with consistency and efficiency, the less likely there are to be senior executives who are selected for agility. They're selected for reliability. And then if you're a public company, there's another layer of expectations imposed upon the, uh, the executive infrastructure. So humility and agility are not associated with pronouncements and certainty and the voice of confidence, but we live in a post-Adam Neumann world and people are seeing the, the glass half empty now rather than half full. What percentage of luxury CEOs do you think have been to Bista Village, the most productive shopping center on the planet? The two parts to that question. The answer firstly is relatively few. And of those who have been, how many have been in the last 24 months? And without naming names, the leaders of brands who are defining the luxury and fashion business today, they've gone. They find the time to go. They overcome the, I would call it hostility, cultural hostility towards the, uh, the thought that we're somehow embracing or celebrating their surplus 
historically the brands burnt the stock in part to deny they had surplus to to emphasize perfection the notion that, that uh, they had a system that could outperform the environment the economy the weather uh, so it's i would say the ones who are agile have been there and some of the most important ceos for fashion retail in the world have been there in the last 24 months but it's a small percentage of the whole the final statement i would uh, so we said discipline humility the final statement i would make is there has to be passion it goes back to the soul the celebration of the soul and our vision of creating environments for guests that produce memories the memory could be the purchase memory and meaning memory and meaning so very simplistically we are firm adherence of the vision that profit follows doesn't lead profit follows product and passion and if we employ discipline humility and a commitment to product the numbers work out and that's always about investing in things that aren't clear today how they will work that's always about celebrating failing forward making mistakes not fundamental structural mistakes that could kill us but trying new things getting ahead of the curve these are all words that everyone says but if you look at why companies are hitting the wall they may be saying those things and the leaders may believe them but the steering wheel and the engine room the rudder and the engine room are disconnected from the bridge and this the steering wheel and the, and the and the the gear shift produce no results that leads us to really talk about therefore flagship services you're not letting the um, industry obviously take the lead uh, in how you run your business otherwise you wouldn't be where you are so you're stepping up and doubling down on everything that's happened over the last 25 years by saying you know a little bit down the line of of the fact that when you say that uh, the future of retail is digital but the future of brand is physical you're building these temples and you want to double down into the sort of flagships that these businesses build with you talk about sort of some of the the services that you are putting in place i mean i know there's they pertain and are you're exploring sustainability and full price bestsellers and private client services and clienteling and duty bonded stores and in china but so talk about some of the services that you have in mind sure we we have a longer list and we can only do so many at a time the principle of these services is rip up the playbook focus on what the guest wants and how the customer can serve that guest which in turn leads to what the brand which is our customer will be doing and then in turn construct ourselves design ourselves to support the brand in achieving its own objectives because we are both in the financial model because it's this licensed royalty logic and in the purpose given the the premise of flagship experience and the necess- necessity of flagships for the brands and in the actual operation we are wholly aligned with the brand and the the brand CEOs who go to visit one of our projects to test why we can become better aligned how we can work more closely together in partnership they define our our purpose and also our success because that's evidence and we live in an evidence based world that's evidence that we are able to add value in ways that are useful to the brands so we start with saying that the brands themselves know where they're going 
better than they know how to get there. And we then add in the idea that the issue is not us take sustainability. We have a sustainability program. We have sustainability initiatives. The flagship services logic is, in addition to all of that, how do we help the brands approach their sustainability objectives and ambitions? How do we help serve the brands, define and communicate their commitment to sustainability, which is ever more necessary when the real real is announcing that it is sustainable retail? That just shows how central the theme is. It's a dominant theme for this moment, and it's growing in volume. So that's one broader statement. Uh, take clienteling. Clienteling, in this sense, is not we're building our own list of high-value clients, which, of course, we do. This is how do we support the brands as they address their high-value clients. And in a world where within the brands, you still have enormous debate about what is the target client profile and what is the difference between CRM and client telling, between big data, which everyone says is the future of the universe, and making <laughs> a handful of people feel wonderful and special, and they spread the word about why the brand matters. Quality high proficiency, as they call it at LVMH, which is a fancy way of saying word of mouth, right? So the most powerful advocacy, the most authentic, is that word of mouth. It's, it's just the, the thought that someone whom you trust enough to test and follow. That's why your NPS scores are you know, off the charts as it pertains to the luxury industry. And that's also from the study you did, I think. So what we, we try to do is get the brands to lead these things. But in fact, usually we're in some sense embracing that same friction I was describing earlier. We're going to a brand and saying, here's where we would like to go together. And the brand typically is saying, we're very busy. We're overloaded. You're not our full price flagship store. And what they don't say, but which is completely true, is, by the way, we're not actually retailers. We're manufacturers. We're designers. We're financial sector participants. Mm -hmm. We're only retailers because the department stores failed us is one answer. And the multi-brands have been displaced by the internet. So we're, we're retailers by default. But more realistically, the brands are retailers because they have to be agile and the world has changed. And our focus is very much, again, with this notion of clienteling as an example. How will the brands define their clienteling profile? And if you look at all of the major they're fundamentally focused on the equivalent of CRM for the masses because they can't get the high value data. I'm saying this very simplistically from their own staffs. Mm -hmm. Because if I am a top salesperson on Madison Avenue or Monte Napoleone, why would I give the brand my contacts so that, so that the brand can then globalize them, spread them across my, my company and take away my livelihood. Mm -hmm. And by the way, what if I, my brand struggles and I change brands. I want to take those clients with me. So the brands themselves don't own the data and don't own the relationships. That has to change and it is changing. So the interesting puzzle is how we can help the brand achieve that. None of what we're doing, by definition, therefore, is comfortable. So you spoke about the Hotel Academy in Lausanne. 
we have these proprietary programs we're working on with them because it's, it's taking hospitality industry concepts and trying to use them to train retail experts. But who are those experts? We pay for the training. They're the managers of the stores in the brand's boutiques in our villages. So we're actually taking, at our cost, a boutique manager who works for a famous brand with great pride, great ego, great confidence. And we're actually saying, would you please go to Lausanne and do a high-intensity, specialized course to address our customer, that luxury traveling consumer, to address our vision for a flagship retail, a full-price customer acquisition. And, and by the way, you're going to be told a lot of things that either you haven't been told by head office or may contradict what you're being told by head office because actually someone came from halfway around the world to spend the day with us and you have to fight for her time against 149 other fashion and luxury brands in this village of boutiques. You don't own that customer as a regular attendee of your flagship full-price store and have her live in the immediate catchment. So it's different, but I can tell you that, that where we succeed, it's because the brands are either agile enough or dysfunctional enough to allow individual excellence to emerge at the level of their own staff who don't work for us. What's interesting about the clienteling side of it and the, and the service and hospitality training is that in some conditions, it would allow you to be able to say to a client who walks into the store at, um, you know, pick a maybe Bista Village or La Vallée or wherever, uh, who says, by the way, I've seen the marketing uh, in Vogue magazine of the latest boot. Uh, and I see that this is obviously last season's boot. Do you have the current season's boot? I'm going to buy this boot. Can I also buy the other one? You're able to potentially over time offer full price selling. Is that something that is being explored? And what's your philosophy on that? So our philosophy is flagship retail customers must be given whatever they'd like. Mm -hmm. The customer in that example is always correct. So in terms of full price access, there are the mechanical pieces and then there's the surprising piece. So we're running trial programs now, full price sales in store on an iPad. So that boot could be sold in real time in our store, in our village, on the salesperson's iPad and could be waiting for that guest back at home in Doha or Dubai or Delhi delivered directly by the brand from its local distribution hub, if you'd like, store network in those markets. That's one example that we're trialing. A second is we're looking at, if you think about currencies and bestsellers, particularly things like handbags, right? you're, a you're a luxury traveling consumer. You're, you're likely to buy that bag in a duty-free store in an airport. From the brand's point of view, you have a window at the airport to capture that woman's attention. Yep. If she's prepared to shop rather than other things she could do, if the flight is delayed, but if she's racing to the gate, you've missed her. Or if someone else, some other brand captures her attention, you've missed her. So why shouldn't we offer a second window to be yep. Heathrow Terminal 5? Terminal 6, I think, as you call it. Terminal 6 with the shopping without the planes. <laughs> so why can't we capture her for the brand? By the way, the brand owns her data when the brand, when, when she shops. 
and the brand has made that sale, and she can buy that bag and get the duty-free reclaim from us or from the airport. So the brand increases its coverage, its capacity to touch that duty-free consumer. Now, here's the surprising piece that's less obvious but absolutely fundamental. The biggest obstacle in selling those full-price items is the sales staff, is the quality of the staff, how well they're trained, how well they know the current collection, how they are treated, how they are regarded by their own brand employer. And that's wildly variable. And fundamentally, again, because the brands historically aren't retailers, it's not a comfortable arrangement. And then when you get to our world, which is, again, the the messy part, right? We're confident we're a flagship. And everything that touches the brand must be of flagship quality. Everything that touches the consumer and the consumer's intersection with the brand must be a flagship quality. The brand is struggling to achieve that in its full price point of sale on Avenue Montaigne. And you say, how about in some out of center location where we can show you very good stats, but you may not go there very often and you may not understand who that customer is from the visceral experience of watching that customer. That's why we go to third party highly regarded consulting practices because at least their their identity, their brand, might get the attention of, of a decision maker inside these fashion brands. The perverse thing is that these fashion brands are har- hugely hierarchical, highly concentrated in terms of decision making. And the business is extremely complex and the pace is relentless. And back to that agility point, the willingness to try and do new things when everyone's working 24-7 to just stay on the road. It's an inconsistency. It's a conflict. And I think that there are typically simple tests that as an investor, I would apply to, to judge a brand. How well can the brand do certain things? How well can it address 10 years ago? If a brand couldn't address a digital logic or couldn't address a China logic, they weren't embracing the present, let alone the future. You can look at any point in the cycle and say, what are those benchmarks? The, the chief executives of those brands aren't necessarily chosen for those criteria. Yeah. If you look at, there's a major brand that's just appointed a financial person as a chief executive. The person either, it may turn out all right. I and mean, that's why retail is so interesting because it's messy and confusing. But that individual doesn't know product, doesn't know retail, doesn't know manufacturing doesn't know retail brands. And the board, in its wisdom, has said, this is a reliable, safe hands, serious person. We'll put that person in charge. Probably, if it works, it will be because there's truly a team of rivals around that individual where there's enough interplay and enough energy that the brand can perform with agility. But if that individual who comes out of the financial services mindset in this example, says, here's how we're going to do things going forward. And you see this a lot with private equity firms taking over brands. It turns out not to work out very well. Um, There's often a surge, but the fragility of a new designer, finding the balance between the designer and the product execution and delivery 
it's it's a fascinatingly complex and delicate balance. But I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that um, the once again the the leadership or the industry, um, when looking at the the city, the walled city that is called New Customer Land, uh, when they're looking at that, so they think it's got one gate today, and that one gate is their full price stores mainly and their e-commerce site. But I would say mainly their e-commerce. They're now saying that's the big gate. But there's another gate, and I would say that's why I think of you guys as a as a your own channel, which delivers young customers. Over half of them are millennials, and they're coming into this gate, and they are very affluent. They come from all corners of the earth because they're traveling. Sixty percent of them are long haul tourists, or something to that effect. Yet that gate is unguarded. For some reason, there's no one ushering them in, and there's no other than you. Uh, there's no one from the industry on the brand side truly milking that gate for what it should be milking. And I think that's that's a really fascinating uh, task, I guess, for the years to come to get the industry up to speed on on this stuff. Well, here, here's how I see the, the picture. And, and it's it's been a, an extraordinary privilege to participate in this in this evolution. Online customer acquisition is, a, is not real. Economically, it's not viable. So Incredibly expensive. Everyone, and it's not going to get simpler. And I've, I've sat in a room with a fashion person. Uh, and they all say Instagram person. has lowered the customer, the, the entry point into the industry. It's not true because you have to pay there as well and you have to pay the influencer. And you have to pay Google, you have to pay Facebook. And the, the, the customer acquisition cost online for a luxury brand can be as high as $300 per customer. And that means at that margin, you have to sell them at least four or $500 to break even on the first transaction. It's expensive. The, the retailers call it the Facebook, Google tax. They're that literal about it. So there's no future except for momentary surges based on digital popularity, awakening consciousness. There's no reliable customer acquisition online. Customer acquisition through department stores is waning and becoming increasingly irrelevant. Though I would say in, in that instance, because of the multi-brand nature of it, and again, you have similar multi-brand obviously functionality, the eyeballs that historically brands have received from department stores, I, I think still do. For example, the great irony of ironies is that the CEO of Bonobos, who's the godfather of digital native land, said that their number one most profitable channel now is Nordstrom. So, you know, they've gone from saying these guys, they don't want to do retail, now they're opening all their own retail shops. When I say these guys, I mean the digital natives. They're opening retail shops, and now they realize that get the eyeballs, there are people that actually shop in department stores and there are many of them. So it's about so, balancing so, the whole industry, I think. I think that's absolutely correct. The point is Nordstrom's taking the point of the view of a merchant and a retailer. Department stores are increasingly run by accountants and private equity owners. And that's a mismatch because, because actually the customer is intelligent. Customer is wicked smart. And the customer says, there's nothing here for me, or this is a place that cares about me, wants me, and is investing in me. And so that's what I think defines the end of the modern department store. It's not the internet, though that has a huge impact. It's centralized buying, the abolition of buyers' training programs, uh, the idea that one person sitting in front of a computer screen through, let's call it, retail analytics can predict who's going to shop where, why, and how. It doesn't work that way. 
So, you need the digital and the analog together. Mm-hmm. So the department store is limited as a customer acquisition point. The boutiques that are owned by the brands are variable for many of the reasons we've already discussed. Highly inconsistent execution, heavily reliant on specific individuals who change jobs, change locations, maybe leave the industry. So what you what one gets is a picture where every piece of input matters. Our, our uh, node of input has benefited enormously from being ignored. So the bad news is we're ignored and people don't necessarily embrace what we do in a way that adds value for them, adds the value that they could achieve, mm-hmm. though that's shifting in some notable cases. The good news is, essentially, the brands have said, we're too busy. We have to focus on full price points of distribution. And they've given the responsibility for our piece of the uh, infrastructure to logistics and finance rather than to the merchants, rather than to the retailers. And that has allowed us over 25 years to simply get on with things that turn out to work and experiment with things that don't work, but maybe teach us what can come next. And we're not arguing about why defending the status quo is morally proper because the people we deal with are not emotionally committed to the status quo. They're emotionally committed committed to fulfilling their, their roles within the brands. Whereas the, the marketing, what's fascinating is we're starting now to work very closely with the marketing leaders of these brands who are controlling full price brand positioning. And those people are starting to say to their chief executives in those brands, and in turn into the touch points that are often ours, the finance and logistics, we have these various marketing policies. We're going to specifically design a marketing policy for the Mr. Village Shopping Collection because what they're doing, back to this point you made about capturing these younger emerging consumers, that that's what those marketing people want and what they're looking for. And since we can demonstrate that's what we're doing and since we can demonstrate we're staffed with people that used to work for them, and speak their language and understand the sensitivities of protecting and promoting their brands, Mm -hmm. they're beginning to impose their will and say, we're going to experiment with and work with Mr. Village Shopping Collection to drive our identity and Mm -hmm. to pursue this this new customer. Because that new customer is is the ideal dream, and there is no simple formula. There's no silver bullet for how any of these brands is going to capture that new customer. Yes, the lifeblood of, that's, that's my point, is that the new affluent global young consumer is the lifeblood of the industry. And um, frankly, there aren't that many places to go find them uh, profitably and as profitably. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground, which is great. Um, so I would like to just finish on one question. You are famously quite a, a student uh, of many things, but the industry, the consumer, you uh, are the sort of anchor sponsor of and the, the, the mind uh, behind doing the uh, travel lecture at Harvard Business School, which has been a wonderful success and all you're doing. You take your teams to Silicon Valley and to Seattle to meet Amazon and you go on these pilgrimages to learn. Um, so you're always thinking over the horizon. I, I know that about you. What are the things that you have uh, seen or read or uh, are thinking about um, that you have learned maybe on your pilgrimages to Silicon Valley 
that are keeping you um, enthralled or interested about the next decade uh, in consumer, in, in, in automation? I mean, it doesn't have to be anything pertaining too much to the industry, but it, it could be. Uh, what's, what's been fascinating to you of late? I think that the uh, Silicon Valley, Amazon, Seattle nexus is spectacular. It's a bridge between rule of law, as embraced most definitionally in Europe, European Union uh, data protection regulations. They're, they're leading the way in defining how data is guarded and managed, and the free-for-all, which is emerging markets. And somehow the balance of the two and the originality, the creativity that emerges is found in, in that geographic region of the U.S. So firstly, when you go there, you realize that instead of listening to somebody who's a visitor to the normal world, you're now the visitor, and the normal world is defined differently. That part I find extremely stimulating. Some observations about what, how we see the world based on the retail world going forward based on what we're learning in Silicon Valley and Seattle. Number one, uh, fashion and digital have virtually no intersection. I've sat in the rooms and the fashion people are speaking Italian and the <laughs> digital people are speaking code. And they, they literally don't understand where they might as well be speaking Eskimo. So that's, so that's one observation. A second observation is that fashion is all about value in the product. And therefore, this balancing act, which is, which is literally, I think, now mathematical. The more we sell online, the more we need to invest in flagship retail. That's fashion. Digital is the more we sell, the better a success we are. So it's all about scale about efficiency, about velocity. Uh, it's about AI, right? How do they get something to you from a warehouse within two hours? Because it's already in the warehouse because they're using AI to predict what you'll, what you'll buy and why. But again, volume at the expense of everything because efficiency is the core versus brand value as the authentication of, of price two wildly different points of view. The, the third thing is that, that point you made about customer acquisition cost. Everybody wants to think, particularly the financial markets want to think, or those who speak to the financial markets are pushed to confirm a falsehood, which is there's a silver bullet in terms of customer acquisition, and it's called the internet. doesn't work like that and it's not going to work like that and then the next piece i think is the most intriguing when you when one goes to fashion and its intersection with flagship retail which is the best that the online world can do is deliver great efficiency the definition of great experience online is great efficiency and that is not something that touches the five senses that's not something that touches the human soul we are we are absolutely in our behaviors completely driven by looking for experience in everything we choose the, the types of experience the qualities of the experience 
the acceptability of that experience, it's all, it's all rapidly evolving. The notion that uh, sports athletes and movie stars are going to be wearing fur coats seems to be gone. It wasn't so long ago that the, the greatest innovation in the retailing of fur was that football players and basketball players were wearing fur coats because they were much bigger. So the coats were much bigger. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the industry was growing, and now it's, it's evaporating. So these, these shifts built around, if you'd like, the, the mindset of tomorrow's customer are very real. But what's absolutely clear in any study you read is this. Younger people are spending less on possessions to spend more on experience. So back to your earlier uh, vision of this conversation, the, where those two come together, the confluence of experience and um, efficiency, that's, that's fundamental to where things are going. A final comment on digital is that digital allows us as brands, as supporters of brands, as builders of brands, as service providers to brands, to touch the world. Farfetch is an extraordinary company in this sense. It helps to preserve and secure the future of small multi-brand boutiques around the world. Because instead of their getting labored with inventory, they can't move odd bits and pieces and bit by bit they're uneconomic. They can find a way to turn that inefficiency into cash and that cash can go back. A graceful business to business solution. Graceful business to business solution. What Farfetch should be worth in the consumer marketplace, in the financial stock market? Those are other questions. But Farfetch is an example of how technology creates opportunity for brands to evolve and survive. I agree. And that that's the very exciting message. When, when we start the day, we have to wake up and say, change is good. Because we're confronted with change relentlessly. And we have to figure out how that changing environment delivers something good. But when I go to Silicon Valley and check into a hotel, the person checking me in knows more about technology than anybody I meet outside of Silicon Valley in the capital cities around the world. Because that person is saying to you, this technology needs to change, will change. Here's why it will be better. And these are not technologists. These are just people they're citizens. living. They're citizens of a, of a technolog- technologically enlightened world. Yeah. And that, I think, is the, the heartbeat of where brands will go. Not they will become important because they make use of technology. Technology is a utility. They will all make use of technology. Yeah. Not because they will acquire customers online in an affordable way. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I, lo- I love the expression, uh, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Agreed. Agreed. Scott, I know that you and I could probably talk for a few more hours, uh, and I think that would um, would be wonderful, wonderful for me and for our listeners. But I think it's good a good place to probably uh, wrap up. Um, you know, it's been a, a really interesting for me preparing for this talk to try and synthesize in what will have been a, a nice hour. Um, 
about 15 years of weekly conversations. <laughs> so I, um, I thank you for, for joining me on the safari and I look forward to, to finishing it up and getting it out there. And um, you know, maybe we'll do a, another round uh, uh, later down the road. Thank you, Morty. Thanks so much, Scott. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. 